You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra showerheads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is the host, Travis. Going to be talking about the California coast today with Sean Bothwell. He is the executive director of the California Coastkeeper Alliance. Sean, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. As I was you know, trying to prepare for this podcast, I was looking at the work that you all do and looking at maps of California even, and just, you know, it's a huge place, right? And you guys deal with all these coastal issues, the ocean issues, but then all the, the freshwater and, and what's going on inland. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to hear like what it's like trying to take all that on at, at once. I mean, it's personally exciting, I think. Um, you know, we really feel like our our main focus is land-based sources of pollution that cause water quality problems in the ocean. So we really focus most of our work on that land-sea interface. Um, you know, our name's a little misleading. We do actually do a lot of inland um, issues. Uh, we have inland water keepers that we represent in Sacramento. So we, you know, we have, for example, a Yuba water keeper and a Klamath river keeper. And so, you know, it keeps things interesting to have that diversity. And, you know, you get to work with different stakeholders, um, depending on what issue it is. Um, and you get to work with different agencies and get to know, you know, different you know, high level decision makers. So, so it, it, it makes it exciting. Um, but we, yeah, we really try to, even some of our freshwater work, we really try to find a lens for how that also can improve uh, ocean quality health 
Um, and in fact, we just released uh, Ocean Climate Resiliency uh, Action Plan. Um, and what we what we did there was really take a lot of our Clean Water Act work that we do on fresh water issues and look at how we can make our ocean coast more uh, climate resilient through the lens of the Clean Water Act and in some of the freshwater solutions that we've also been pitching. Um, so, you know, we do take on a lot. My um, my water keepers always say, like, we need to focus in. But, you know, we, we get good achievements, too. And I think, you know, overall, the water keepers, you know, we're, we're aggressive. Um, but I think we make a lot of progress because we're pragmatic. We You know, we're not asking for crazy things. And we really try to be solutions oriented. So rather than, you know, just state the problem or complain about a certain permit or policy, we actually provide, you know, red line edits of exactly like what we want to see and what the solutions are we're pushing. And so I think that's, that's made it, um, you know, more manageable as, as we kind of break down um, each of our program areas. And then it's just really helpful. So we have about 15 water keepers in California um, and they're all very on the ground watershed based. And so they're able to bring their local issues up to a statewide level, explain what's going on on the ground. And we're able um, to imp- implement or fix whatever those problems are uh, through whether it's legislation or state policy. And so I think that relationship between the local water keepers and, and California Coast Keeper Alliance uh, is really powerful to, to bring that voice to the local groups up to Sacramento because Sacramento can get somewhat insulated at times where, you know, they, they don't know exactly what the key watershed issues are that need to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so for this conversation today, we'll, we'll focus on the coast and I uh, hope to connect with you later to talk kind of about the, the freshwater and inland side of things. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the California coast. It's spectacular. It's, uh, it's so diverse. Uh, yeah. you got, I'm, a, I'm a surfer. You got lots of great waves all over the place there. Uh, great lifestyle. Could you just kind of give the basic stats on like the size of the California coast and, and how you describe it? Yeah, um, the coast is about 1,100 square miles from San Diego to the Oregon uh, border. Um, and we do have water keepers that cover all of those watersheds along the coast. And the way I think about it, I break it down into somewhat four regions. There's, you know, Southern California from San Diego, basically to Santa Barbara. Um, and, you know, th- that's a lot of sandy beaches, famous, you know, surf areas um, with, with a very heavily urbanized area. Um, and we can get into some of those issues of what those water quality impacts are. And then you have the Channel Islands that are kind of part of that Southern California focus. Mm. Uh, but again, very beach surfer kind of thought of. Um, and then on the central coast, you know, you have Big Sur, you have the Monterey Coast with, you know, rocky reefs and, and huge kelp beds with sea otters. Um, it's really just a beautiful place. It's less urbanized. Um, but one thing that I think a lot of folks don't appreciate is just the amount of agriculture actually that's just off the coast um, of Monterey. About 80% of all of our leafy greens, um, artichokes, Brussels sprouts, all of that um, comes from the kind of the Salinas Valley there. Uh, and it, dis- uh, it the watershed runs off into the Monterey Bay. So you have this really agricultural productive area along with a very pristine uh, coastline. And it's kind of, it, you know, it takes some work to manage that. Uh, then you have the San Francisco Bay, um, which is kind of a separate entity. It's regulated somewhat differently than the rest of the coast. But, you know, a lot of ports, uh, California as a whole, have um, 11 ports overall. 
Oakland, uh, Los Angeles, and Long Beach um, are three of the, the biggest in, in the country. And uh, I believe Long Beach and Los Angeles are is the sixth busiest in, in the world. So there's a lot of port activity in, in both those areas. And then you have the North Coast, which is a lot of just redwood trees and, and um, kind of really quiet areas where you don't get a lot of um, people there. Uh, you know, the Sonoma Coast, people come go visit that, but you get up further north to Humboldt area and there's some really, you know, pristine, quiet stretches of land that really no one ever visits. Hmm. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, well taken care of and it, it's kind of just a beautiful spot. So there's a lot of diversity th- throughout the coast. Yeah. Um, when I, when I've talked to people about California, you know, they, they talk about going to the LA and Southern California and San Francisco. And I'm always surprised how few people have gotten into Big Sur or the Northern part. And I'm like, you got to go. They're just spectacular. <laughs> just unbelievable. So yeah, I, I've been living up, I, I grew up in Southern California, but I've spent the last 10 years up here and I'm still just discovering little pocket beaches everywhere along the coast where you basically spend the whole day and not see anyone. But it's it, it's like the most beautiful place, and people just don't realize just how many uh, how fortunate we are with all all the diversity we have along the coast. Yeah, well, let's let's talk. I love that you mentioned before about your focus on solutions because I wanna I wanna kind of talk about that as we move on. But first, how would you frame like the biggest challenges for California's coast? I know there's a lot and they're diverse, but what would you kind of put in the in the top slots for challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think with any environmental issue, you, you need to start with climate change and, and the, the main impacts from that, and then you kind of work your way out. So, you know, sea level rise and ocean acidification are the two biggest threats to the California coast. Um, you know, obviously, sea level rise is more of a um, kind of a human safety concern, um, and, and we can get into solutions for how we better prepare for that. Um, ocean acidification is the, the issue that isn't brought up enough. I don't think enough of the public actually knows about ocean acidification and hypoxia, but that is actually just me personally, the most troubling uh, thing on the horizon, uh, because basically the oceans are absorbing um, the carbon in our atmosphere and it's making our oceans more acidic. And when the ocean's more acidic, um, marine species that have shells basically can't create shells. And if you think about our food web, if the lowest critters you know, can't form shells, then that disrupts our entire food chain all the way up to orca whales that rely on those type of um, shelled organisms to to live off. And so that's really concerning to us and an area we've really been focused on because there are uh, water quality solutions we can do to to get at ocean acidification. Well, let's... I was going to yep. say let's let's stay on the climate on the sea level rise and acidification topic then for a little bit because I'm it's it's definitely very interesting, um, and so you guys are seeing the impacts on the California coast. You're seeing these the shellfish not being able to develop shells, and then you're seeing that lack of food for for up the food chain. That's that's already happening, huh? It's already it started in Washington actually. Um, oyster growers have been really noticing it, but. Yeah, we, we work with um, a lot of businesses along the coast that do oyster, uh, raise oyster shells, and they, they are seeing impacts here in California. And the West Coast is going to be one of the hardest hit with ocean acidification. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of folks see it as, well, it's a global problem because of the amount of carbon we have in the atmosphere, uh, which is true. Um, but there are solutions that California and other states can take 
now to prevent um, what I call ocean acidification hotspots, areas that it's not just from global climate change, um, the, the, the pH, the acidity is actually lower in these areas because of man-made stressors from the coast. And that's really uh, what California Coast Keeper has been focused on over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I really wasn't familiar with that concept of like the hot spots for acidification. That's very interesting. So what what is it that's fueling those? What's is something coming from the land, some type of pollution coming from the land? Yeah, it's primarily nutrients, um, but the sources of it. So there's been a study being done um, in Southern California, but it's being um, done by the, the state on looking at wastewater facilities and their discharge of, of wastewater into the ocean is actually causing these hotspots. And we've known that for a couple of years now, but they've really been looking at, well, does it then, does the currents then move it away or do they actually stay there and, and have an impact on the, the um, biological you know, marine life? And, and that's where the science is going that yes, in fact, these wastewater folks, the wastewater facilities um, are causing these hotspots. So that's the main stressor, but also um, stormwater runoff, uh, agricultural runoff has a lot of nutrients in it, which causes uh, harmful algae blooms, these toxic blooms uh, that when they die off, then lowers the, the, the pH and the acidity as well. Um, and so th those are the main drivers uh, mm -hmm. of, of it and where we've been really trying to tackle, um, you know, improving those land stressors so that we don't have those hotspots here in California. So that's the that's the local level solution is is trying to reduce the nutrients coming off the land or out of certain facilities. Yeah, and again, the, what I said at the beginning of we've been working on some of these issues for a while now of you know improving stormwater runoff so that we're capturing it and using it as a resource. Uh, California has really been moving in that direction where we used to treat stormwater and then let it run off. Um, now we try to capture it and infiltrate it into the ground because we need it uh, for our groundwater supplies. Um, on agriculture runoff, we've been we're looking at. In fact, there's a hearing today on limiting the amount of nutrients put onto fields um, for irrigated agriculture. Same with dairies. We're trying to get at uh, making sure dairies control their nutrient runoff so it's not polluting our uh, rivers and then ending up in the ocean. And then for the wastewater folks, what we've really been pushing over the last few years. Um, is really to recycle all of our ocean wastewater. Uh, there's, there's a study or some data has just came out. There's going to be a hearing in a couple of weeks, but 1.7 million acre feet of water uh, is discharged to the ocean every year. And that's a lot of water that we could be recycling. Uh, California is the leader in the country on um, potable reuse regulation, so drinkable recycled water. Uh, we have one of the most cutting edge facilities down in Orange County that for years now, for, you know, couple decades has been recycling water uh, to the level that it's drinkable and then putting it into the groundwater basin. We also have new facilities coming online or being proposed that uh, will put it into reservoirs, surface open reservoirs. And um, California Coast Keeper and uh, Water Reuse, the water recycling industry, we actually passed a law a couple of years ago that uh, California will have what's called direct potable reuse regulations by 2023. Um, and so that's going to allow to eliminate the environmental buffer, either the groundwater basin or the, the aquifer, and um, deliver recycled water directly uh, to the distribution system, so it goes directly to your home. And when we get there, it's going to be a, a pretty pivotal moment because right now certain communities have barriers to doing water recycling. So for example, San Diego uh, didn't have a, a groundwater basin to infiltrate the water into, and so that's why they needed a surface reservoir. 
um, system. But in a couple of years, when anyone can put it directly into the distribution system, really no one has an excuse for um, discharging that ocean wastewater into the ocean. And the reason we think that's really important besides just getting at ocean acidification is, you know, California moves water all around the state, right? And that is our largest energy driver is pumping water from the Delta or the Colorado River or Mono Lake, pumping it up over the hills and into the Los Angeles region. And if we do that and then we just discharge it out into the ocean uh, without reusing it and recycling it, and we have the ability to recycle it. So that's really where we've been pushing um, over the last couple of years is making sure we, we get to a, a recycling all ocean wastewater. Um, the state water board in 2018 actually passed a, uh, a state goal uh, to recycle all um, ocean wastewater that, that could be used uh, for drinkable purposes. And then this year, the Ocean Protection Council um, adopted an ocean complete ocean strategy uh, that requires 85 to 90% of um, wastewater to be recycled by 2040. So that, that gets us at our water supply problems down in Southern California, but also starts to limit the amount of nutrients and wastewater that's being put into the ocean so that we can, we can stop these ocean acidification hotspots. Yeah, so that, that old reduce, reuse, recycle really applies exactly. to water now too, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Um, <clears throat> very cool. So on the sea level rise side of things, um, you know, I, I'm on the East Coast, so I have that East Coast orientation a lot of times. I know Florida and, you know, the, the Norfolk, Virginia area. I know a lot of these communities are really getting hit with sea level rise. Um, California is less flat, right? You start to get land pretty Correct. quickly. But yeah. um, so tell me more about what's projected for sea level rise for California and what that means for coastal communities. Yeah. So the, for one, the projections are always changing, right? Then they seem to be getting worse where as more carbons in the atmosphere, uh, you know, the, the projections I increase right now. I think where the state is at is we're expecting a one foot sea level rise by 2030, um, about a three foot rise by 2050. Um, and then, um, about 10 feet by 2100. Um, and that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of infrastructure. We have a lot of roads. Um, we have a lot of, uh, our economy that's just right up along the coast and, and we, we need to take it seriously, particularly in the Bay area. Uh, there's already large areas that are, are, are basically behind seawalls, um, where they're at risk, you know, similar to, you know, take New Orleans um, and, and their issues of they're, they're basically under sea level and same with certain areas in the, in the Bay Area. And we have just infrastructure. We have trains. We have our highways are just right up along um, uh, along the, the, the coast there. So those are really the areas we need to start addressing. Um, and there's about 3,500 miles of, of road um, that are at risk uh, by 2050. Um, and the Ocean Protection Council, just in their new strategic plan, they're, they're working to be resilient to 3.5 uh, feet of sea level rise by 2050 is, is the state goal right now is for us to either um, armor the coast and put seawalls up, which has definitely its drawbacks. Uh, but in certain areas, it's just going to be necessary, right? There's certain cities that we can't move the entire San Francisco, you know, Bayfront. And so seawalls are just going to be necessary in certain areas. Uh, but in other areas, we're looking at how we can do managed retreat 
um, areas that make sense to move infrastructure uh, back. Um, in some areas, you know, maybe we just have to raise roads. Um, but really, there's the soft solutions of looking at, you know, sand dunes and, and wetland restoration. We've lost a lot of our wetlands over the years where that's an area, uh, you know, a focus of not only just restoring our wetlands and building them up for sea level rise, but also allowing them to move, retreat back with sea level rise. If, you know, if you have a hard structure and the sea's rising, so the wetlands are moving back, um, it's only so far they can go until we start losing them. So it's really that combination of, you know, protecting the areas that we can't move back, uh, retreating in areas where it makes sense, and then protecting our, our, our ecosystems and soft habitats, um, both, you know, seagrass, kelp beds, um, oyster beds, all of that type of restoration is, is really important. And it goes to California's blue economy. Um, we're doing a lot more on, you know, seaweed restoration and seaweed um, economics and, and oyster restoration. So um, it's all part of the kind of the blue economy that California is trying to push. Yeah. Uh, big price tags when you're talking about a lot of that hard, hard infrastructure, right? Seawalls and raising roads and rebuilding in different places. Um Big, big dollar amounts. I saw something about the, 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 the state's first sea level rise regulations. Uh, what's that? So the Coastal Commission, which is the entity that regulates, um, you know, houses being built on the coast, any type of uh, coastal projects. Uh, they, in 2015, came out with guidance to their um, both the permit writers and the planning units of, of how to um you know, address sea level rise. And so basically permit by permit, they need to, to look at how, you know, either we're putting a seawall in and protecting or the retreat or some way to protect it. Um, and particularly looking at new infrastructure um, because it's unfortunate, but, you know, folks are still planning wastewater facilities and power plants and desal facilities in areas where we know is going to be underwater in, in you know, 30 years. Mm. And yet these projects are 50-year projects. Um, and so that's really where the Coastal Commission is trying to get to. Uh, we actually just introduced a bill yesterday with um, Assemblymember Petrie Norris um, looking at getting other agencies to really um, develop their permits through the lens of climate change and the lens of sea level rise. And in particular, we are trying to get the state to not put state funding uh, into infrastructure projects that they know in the lifetime of the project are going to be in these sea level rise zones. Um, you know, there's a lot of different programs that give money for infrastructure, and we don't want to encourage those projects being cited in sea level rise areas. Gotcha. Yeah, we, we spoke about uh, how you know, managing for sea level rise can, can be expensive. Um, one thing, one success story California has been working on over the last couple of years is what we call beneficial reuse. Um, and what's going on is the, the Federal Army Corps, um, they, they dredge all of the ports and harbors, mostly in San Francisco, but also in Los Angeles and Long Beach. Um, and they are required to dispose of that sediment the cheapest way possible. That's a federal requirement. And so even though the state has all these areas that need sediment for wetland restoration, uh, the Federal Corps has been dumping it. They, they drive the sediment 55 miles off the coast and just dump it overboard. Um, and so we've been working with the state and the Army Corps to set up a program where basically California pays the incremental difference uh, between disposing it offshore and instead putting it into our wetland restoration projects. 
And it, it's really gotten a lot of bipartisan support because the state is going to have to pay for these wetland restoration projects anyway, and they need to find sediment. Um, and so rather than just dumping good sediment out to the ocean, what we do is we pay the incremental difference, which is really pennies on the dollar, um, to, to do these wetland restoration projects in the Bay Area. And we're hoping to make it a statewide program um, in the coming year. So that's really uh, you know, a, a way that the state can save money while also adapting to sea level rise uh, that we think is really important and hope will continue. Um, I know one of the other pressures on California's coast that, that you all talk about is, is from energy, meaning uh, drilling for oil, power plants, even desalination. Um, what, how, does, how does the energy sector put, put different pressures on the coast? Yeah, uh, I mean, the oldest time one and the one most people think of is just oil drilling. You know, we have pretty extensive oil drilling off the Santa Barbara Channel in federal waters. Um, and I think most people know the infamous, the, six, the 1969 Santa Barbara spill um, that pretty much wiped out the, the coast there. Mm. Um, so we have drilling. We also have uh, container ships uh, coming into San Francisco Bay, mostly has had numerous spills over the last decade where they've either ran into um, you know, the, the Bay Bridge, I recall one time when I, I worked in the, the Bay Area. Um, so they have spills every so often. And then also just uh, pipeline safety. Uh, recently in 2015, there was a pipeline that burst in Santa Barbara and polluted, uh, uh, really just destroyed an entire beach. And so um, those are kind of the three uh, threats from oil development um, over the years. Um, we also have a lot of power plants that line our coast, as you mentioned. Um, and these power plants, they're built on the coast because they cool down their generators by taking in ocean seawater. And actually, we worked with the State Water Board uh, for about a decade. Um, the State Water Board adopted what they call the Once Through Cooling Policy in 2010. And that policy is requiring all these power plants to no longer take in ocean seawater uh, to cool down the generators because it, it killed just millions of um, marine life. Um, there was so much water being sucked into these facilities at such a um, high velocity that literally they would have to go out and scrape sea lions, uh, sea turtles, large fish off the grates to these intakes. Um, and that's not even, you know, talking about the eggs that go, that go past the screens and just die in the generators. And they did it's just a study of just the billions amount of marine life that was being destroyed by, by these facilities. So, so California was really proactive and is now phasing out those power plants. And those power plants are either, a lot of them just shut down because they weren't efficient anymore. Uh, some are retrofitting um, and will stay in. But because of our AB32, our, our cap and trade um, law in California, we are um, largely going to renewables. So a lot of the facilities, rather than retrofit, so they don't take in the seawater, they're just shutting down because we have so much solar um, or, or, or wind now. Um, and then the last thing you mentioned, uh, ocean desalination facilities. Uh, there, there's one large facility in Carlsbad right now, um, and that, that facility was largely controversial. Um, what, what's really happening is these desal facilities are being what's called co-located with the power plants. So basically, they want to come and use the exact same pipes that are now um, illegal under the ones through cooling policy, the ones that they're now uh, phasing out. And unfortunately, the, the state and the state water board and the, water, the regional water boards aren't 
um, really being protective enough to require them to not co-locate. Uh, we, we passed a, what's called the ocean desalination policy back in 2015. And that policy was supposed to get the state to really look at subsurface intakes. Um, so rather than use these big open ocean intakes, um, you would suck water through the sand, similar to you, how you pump groundwater. And that actually reduces the energy demand on ocean desal. Desal can be about three times uh, the energy demand as water recycling. It's the most energy intensive water uh, supply option available. And yet we have these climate change goals, but we're also proposing these ocean desalination facilities. Mm -hmm. And instead of making them do these subsurface intakes, um, right now the regional boards, even with this policy that says you need to do subsurface intakes, um, are still allowing them to be built next to the power plant. And when the power plants are shutting down, they now use the same exact intakes uh, to take in seawater uh, to, to run their desal facilities that are now you know, three times the energy demand. Wow. Well, it's good. It's good to hear that there's with that movement to renewables that there's some solutions happening on the power plant front and hopefully the oil front as well, right? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite solutions for the ocean are marine protected areas. Um, I, I just think they're awesome, and it seems to be the most common sense thing to basically, you know, not physically fence off, but take a part of the ocean and say there's no fishing here, there's no X, Y, and Z, and let wildlife do what it needs to do. Could you give a better explanation of what marine protected areas are and how they are uh, beneficial in the, on the California coast and how maybe they've been success stories? Yeah, I, I think that's been probably one of the California's best success stories, to be honest. Um, you know, we kind of, we consider them, they're like underwater national parks to us. The, you know, that's the way we, we envision them. Um, with climate change, you know, we, we refer to them now as hope spots because you're right. They're basically areas that are pretty either pristine or very highly productive biologically. And the idea was to protect them so that you can't fish there, you can't drill for oil or um, really these protected from these other stressors um, with the idea that there's so many other stressors um, from climate change, right? Things that we can't necessarily prevent, like the ocean acidification issues um, gen generally speaking. Um, but we can stop man-made uh, other stressors, right? So uh, fishing is, is probably the best example, but also just runoff from stormwater is an another example. Um, and so the idea was to protect these areas so that they could be very highly um, you know, biologically significant and essentially spill over, right? So the, the idea is that all the MPAs are connected to each other. And so this connectivity then better helps uh, just marine biology overall uh, off the coast, um, not just necessarily in the spot where it, it was protected. That, that's the idea behind them. Um, and what we're looking at now is, you know, everyone looks at where we can better uh, protect marine resources. What we've been focused on is really protecting the water quality of those areas. Uh, we have things in California called areas of special biological significance. And what those are is they're basically like MPAs, but just for water quality. And they don't necessarily always overlay the marine protected areas. So sometimes, you know, there's uh, about 30, 40% of the areas of special biological significance overlap with the MPAs, there's significant portions that don't have any water quality protections. And so that is something we've been working with with the state, um, looking for the regional boards um, to start putting these protections over all the MPAs. And in fact, the, the new ocean plan 
that the Ocean Protection Council uh, created uh, has a plan in place to have uh, water quality protections for all MPAs uh, in the next in the next couple of years. And so we in 2021, that's probably going to be our biggest goal is starting to set these water quality protections um, from things like agriculture and urban areas like with stormwater runoff. Yeah. I remember seeing articles recently about, you know, scientists calling for 30% of the, of the world's oceans just to be off limits, right? That's what we need to, to let nature do its thing. Um, ambitious, that'll be tough to make happen, but sounds nice. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, there is a push not just for ocean, but also for land uh, conservation, mm. too. In California, um, Governor Newsom just signed an executive order actually pushing the state to do just that, uh, protect 30 percent of ocean coast and then 30 percent of land. And we think we're, you know, a large way there for the ocean. So, um, you know, fishermen are certainly nervous about, you know, additional marine protected areas. Um, but you know, I think the state's looking at the land piece as probably the heavier lift, uh, to be honest, just because, yeah. Well, if you, but you know, you put the, you establish those marine protected areas, the fish do well, they spill over, like you said, and then there's more fish for the fishermen outside of those areas, you know, but it's a, I and that get was, it. that, yeah, that was the entire idea. But you know, the, you know, fishing's tough and yeah. there's already a lot of, um, you know, other things going on with, you know, low flows in the Delta, um, you know, where salmon runs are, are not as plentiful as they used to be. Um, and also again, the, the nutrient loading that's going into the ocean. I talked about the harmful algae blooms. When we have these toxic blooms, um, it really shuts down the, the crab industry. For example, it shut it down pretty bad a couple of years ago. And so the fishing industry is already, you know, gets hit really hard with these other stressors. And so, you know, the state needs to find a balance between, um, you know, making sure we're protecting the areas, but also keeping the, the fishing industry alive. Sure. Uh, speaking uh, of business, uh, one of the other things I saw you guys involved with is the Blue Business Council. Um, love to hear. That's that's a positive thing. Um, what What's that? Why is it important? How has it been successful? Yeah, I mean, you know, I said this at the top that we we really try to drive pragmatic solutions, and in doing that, we need to work you know, hand in hand with the industries that we're regulating. Um, and so we try to do that as much as we can. Um, I work very closely with the water recycling industry, for example. Um, uh, we, you know, we do a lot on storm water regulations, which can be tough for industry, but at the same time, we work with municipalities to be able to better raise fees for stormwater, um, stormwater capture. And so, you know, we work a lot with the, the, the side that we're regulating and, we really felt like we wanted to create this Blue Business Council uh, to really speak on on behalf of why it's important to have clean water in California, both for just California's economy, but also for these individual companies' bottom line. And so the companies on the Blue Business Council see environmental regulation and and you know that create clean water and protect our resources as an actual benefit to their to their business. Um, and so we we created you know we keep bringing in new companies uh, that really just speak on the beha on behalf of why it's important for for water quality regulations and so they the council's been around for about eight years now uh, they've worked on numerous things from offshore oil uh, to plastic um, concerns uh, the state passed uh, a really landmark uh, trash policy back in 2015 that the blue business council helped with 
Uh, recently, they've been uh, really focused on microplastics and microfibers from, from clothing, um, and also on the ocean acidification issue. We, I, I mentioned we, we work with several um, shellfish companies that you know, are, are ac actually out there monitoring uh, pH and the ocean acidification and, and what is happening to, to their resource. Um, and so, you know, there's various ways we work with them. Um, a lot of times they'll send letters to the governor, a, a state agency, uh, but they also helped us craft legislation. And, they, you know, they'll come to Sacramento with us uh, to the Capitol to testify on, on a bill we're running. Um, like I said, on the microfibers piece, we're actually running a bill this year um, that would require new uh, washing machines to have uh, a filter for microfibers similar to what like a lint trap does in your dryer. Wow. Um, yeah, those are coming commercially available in, uh, in Europe right now. Um, right now in, in the United States, you can add it on as a feature. You have to build it in. But in a couple of years, um, you know, most companies will be putting that into their washing machines. And so we want to set that standard in California to really drive innovation and, and get them start doing that sooner rather than later. So that's one of the things we're, we're working on with the Blue Business Council. I, I'm glad to talk to you because California is often driving <laughs> driving innovation and environmental protection and finding the newest thing to do and and then often other states and parts of the country pick it up. So I mm -hmm. hadn't heard about that with the microplastic filter in laundry machines. Very cool. Yeah. Um, well, Sean, uh, there's so much to talk about with the coast and with the inland waters. I appreciate this conversation a ton, and I really uh, like to catch up again in the future and, and talk about kind of the, the inland freshwater side of things a little bit. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for this uh, conversation and all the info. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate you know getting to talk about all the issues we work on. Um, and yeah, we'd be excited to come back and talk about there's so many more other freshwater issues going on. Uh, that I'm, I'm sure we would have plenty to talk about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, once we get past this coronavirus thing, I, I personally uh, look forward to getting back out to the West Coast and uh, hanging out there. It's a good spot. So, yeah, I, I've been traveling a lot to the Sonoma Coast, but I, I miss Southern California beaches. So I'm looking forward to being able to travel down south again soon. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Thank you, Charles. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code WATERLOOP at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. You're in the Waterloop.